Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a live edition of the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. It's the first time we're doing this show live, so we figured we'd have a grand experiment. If anything breaking happens with the blockades, with the protests, if the government perhaps decides to start responding to the blockades and to the protests, we will be well-suited to address and roll with the punches and talk about all the things that are happening in this particular episode of the show. So hello, if you're listening in the East Coast, good afternoon. If you're listening in the West Coast, good morning. If you're listening somewhere else, I have no idea what time it is, but thank you for listening nonetheless. It's my great pleasure to have you tuned in to this edition of the program here. I want to talk about a few different things that are going on, but really the common thread here is that the federal government seems to be completely ignorant right now, willfully so, to the rule of law and to the price that will be paid by all Canadians if inaction continues as it currently is regarding the blockades that are, are sweeping the country. And I say sweeping because we're not even talking about an isolated protest here. We, of course, had the main one in B.C., then the Solidarity one in Ontario, and then you have all of these other uh, little spurs of protest as well. And we're not talking about a few people with signs demonstrating outside provincial legislators, uh, legislatures, government buildings. We're, we're talking about people that are, as a matter of their intent, disrupting Canadian infrastructure, people that are specifically trying to hijack the Canadian economy. I mean, when you camp out on rail lines and you say, I don't believe any commuters should be able to pass, I don't believe any goods should be able to pass, you are actually saying that I want the Canadian economy to suffer. You're saying that you want the Canadian economy to be hijacked by these protesters. And I want to point out a couple of things here that are happening. These are not reflective of what Aboriginal groups by and large are saying. I should clarify what Aboriginal groups that are directly impacted by these projects are saying. What's happening here is you've got a bunch of white liberal perennial protesters, people that will protest the price of milk even if they're vegans because they just want to not work. They want an excuse to do absolutely nothing, to claim some moral superiority, and to actually get all of this attention, even though they don't care. I mean, we've seen this in activist culture throughout the history of activist culture, even in the last 10 years. The Idle No More, the Occupy, the Tent Cities, all of these groups are filled with the same people. Whether it's Liberate Gaza, whether it's Protest Against Meat, I mean, they're all the same people that show up in every single situation, and this gives them an excuse to do the same thing. Now, that's not to say there aren't indigenous people and indigenous groups that have issues with the development, that have issues with the uh, coastal gasoline pipeline. But it is to say that most of those spearheading this are people that have no skin in the game. You know, I just saw about half an hour before I, I went on air today, uh, Greta Thunberg has decided to weigh in on this. And I'll pull up the exact Greta Thunberg tweet. Uh, because I think it's very important that we all uh, destabilize our economy because of what a 16-year-old Swedish girl She says, 
Support the Wet'suwet'en Nation and the pipeline protest happening now in Canada. Hashtag Wet'suwet'en Strong. So what she is saying here is that we are to support it, and she links to a website that has a Wet'suwet'en supporter toolkit, and on this website it has the ability to take action, ask for money, uh, asking, (laughs) my personal favorite, it's saying there's a travel stipend available for Indigenous supporters to travel to the land. So I'm wondering if I should just apply, I know I'm not Indigenous, well I'm Indigenous to where I live I guess, but I I should apply and see if I can get them to pay for me to go and and cover the protest. That would be, (laughs) I'm just looking at this right now, how much funding are you requesting from the travel grant fund? Oh, let me say a first class ticket, uh, you know, car service to the airport. I'll put in 5000 and fill that out later. But, but that should tell you something right there. They are asking you to give them information and they will give you money to go there. Now, this is the definition of paid protesting. This is the definition of paid protesting. They're, they literally have a section on their website where you can apply for money to go visit it. Now they say it's for indigenous people to visit the land, but let's be real. What are they doing on that land? They are having a blockade. They are having a blockade. So they are inviting people and paying people to protest. And look, I'm a capitalist. The irony is the people that are protesting would say they aren't capitalists, but they are behaving in a very capitalist manner. They are protesting for pay. And you know what? This is something that I find fascinating because this demonstration is the epitome of privilege. And I know conservative leader Andrew Scheer got attacked for saying that, but it is the epitome of privilege because these are people that don't seem to care about energy independence, people that don't have to worry about their work, people that don't seem to really have any grounding in reality, and people that are so content with their ideological opposition to oil and gas that they don't even care about the approval of First Nations bans for this project. They don't care about the elected chiefs and the elected councils and the elected band leaders that have said, we think this is great. I mean, the irony of this, and I think it was John Iveson had a great column in the National Post about this, talking about the new colonialists. I mean, you have these people that are co-opting an indigenous message and an indigenous identity and saying that indigenous voices don't matter. And that's the funny thing here. I mean, the left would love to have you believe that this is, you know, white person versus indigenous person. But it really isn't that. They'd love you to believe that it's big evil corporations against uh, indigenous demonstrators. But it really isn't that. It's a, a tiny minority of indigenous demonstrators and indigenous allies. Uh, We hear this all the time, ally theater, these people that theatrically and performatively pretend that they're allied with a group when really they're using that group to advance their own agenda. I mean, Greta Thunberg, I make a point of not taking aim at Greta Thunberg because I think she herself has been co-opted by other people. But I do genuinely believe genuinely, that her interloping in this, which is really what it is, proves the point that this has nothing to do with what the activists that are demonstrating say it's about. It has nothing to do with the top-line, headline purpose of it. And the fact that people are having so much difficulty following what's going on here, I think is indicating that that is what's going on. 
So you have these blockades across the country. You've had some of them that have been dismantled. You had this week border crossings that were taken over. And I was doing a radio interview this morning on CJBK in London, Ontario. And I said, how quickly do you think this would be shut down if they tried this on the other side of the border? If they tried this on the American side, how quickly do you think it would be? They, they, I don't even think they would have like stuck their tent poles in the ground before the whole thing was pulled apart. But in Canada, we have these government leaders that are saying, well, you know, we have to listen and we have to negotiate. I mean, I, I don't want to call them terrorists. Because that word, I think, means something. But I, when I use this saying, you'll understand why. That whole we don't negotiate with terrorists. It used to be that the government policy was we will not legitimize people that hold our country hostage. And regardless of the intents, regardless of how noble you may think their goals are, they are holding the country hostage for their own purposes. When someone can't take the train from Toronto to Ottawa anymore, when truckers are forced to get around blockades, when people can't cross the border to visit grandma in Albany, when people can't do all of these things that are required for personal life and for work, they are being held hostage by these protesters. And the arrogance to suggest that this is, oh, this is just civil disobedience. No, civil disobedience which is oftentimes a word that's used to whitewash criminality, is not what's happening here. What's happening is people are saying, this isn't just protesting, this isn't a letter-writing campaign. Our demands trump the free flow of goods across Canada. Our demands trump what Canadians want to do. And uh, my goodness, if I were to say, you know what, I, I'm a United We Roll supporter. I think that United We Roll convoy that went from the west to Ottawa was a great idea. If those truckers had said, you know what, we are going to just park our trucks on the Trans-Canada Highway, block all lanes, no one's going to get by. That would be broken down so quickly. And I mean, again, it's a moot point in many respects because they'd never do it. But that would have been stopped. It would have been stopped because it would have been just plain wrong. If any other group other than an indigenous or indigenous adjacent group did this, it would be over before it started. But government has a fear. A fear of reliving Oka and Caledonia and Ipperwash, but more importantly, a fear of the virtue signaling social justice warrior Justin Trudeau with his Haida tattoo being seen as not a supporter or an ally of aboriginals. Now, I think the easy antidote to this is to separate the elected indigenous chiefs, the ones who are supporting this, and the ones who are directly impacted by this project and by other pipeline projects as well, from the people that will protest absolutely anything. And again, I, you look at the videos of these, it looks like a vast majority are not indigenous. And there have been indigenous leaders that have said, uh, you know, who are these people? I, they, these aren't indigenous people. These aren't even aboriginals. So yeah, the hereditary chiefs have issues, but they're not the elected lawmakers. They're not the ones that were elected by the people they rep or are supposed to represent to make these determinations and to actually represent them. You know, Mark Miller, who is the Indigenous Affairs Minister, Indigenous Services Minister, did an interview 
on CTV's Power Play. My question again is do we do things the same old way or do we engage in that peaceful, respectful process uh, to de-escalate? And there is a pathway to de-escalation. It's a painful one and it's an hour-by-hour -hour conversation that is, involves engagement at the, higher level, at the highest levels. Myself, Minister Garneau, uh, Minister Bennett, the Prime Minister, we're all deeply engaged and it is a, it is a, it is a moving uh, set of issues. Now let me make a couple of points here. The fact that the Indigenous leader, the indigenous liaison rather, for the government, Mark Miller is doing this, is part of the problem here. Why is this not a public safety priority? Why is this not the public safety minister? Why is it not the defense minister? Uh, so already we have an identity-based response from the government. And more importantly, I think the big, the, the big flaw here is that why do we have to meet them in the middle? Why do we have to meet them in the middle? I, I think the response that was given earlier on was the valid one, which is, okay, you get rid of the blockades and we'll talk, we'll listen. But again, what the demonstrators fail to realize or don't seem to care about, what they don't seem to care about is that there already was consultation. That's how we know that the elected chiefs are on board with it. I think it was the 20 bands that signed on to this. That's how we know they're there. This wasn't just some willy-nilly uh, experiment where some you know, redneck from Coastal Gaslink just stuck a shovel in the ground and said, oh, let's try this and see if anyone's bothered by it. I mean, this process has already been ongoing. The gas side won. The demonstrators lost. Okay, you don't win them all. You don't get a veto. You, and th this is the whole point. You don't get a veto. And I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, uh, well, uh, clearly the government gets a veto. Well, yeah, the, the government is, in theory, the elected representative. The government is the one that's supposed to be able to make the final say. And you do it after consulting, after listening, after hearing. But not everyone's going to be happy 100% of the time. And by the way, th this is not anti indigenous this is quite the opposite actually and you look at a lot of the indigenous communities that don't just require the jobs that come from these development projects but indigenous communities that rely on the resource revenues as well and this is paramount paramount to getting any impoverished community and i'm talking specifically about the ones that are dealing with poverty on, on reserve you need to have development you need to have some kind of economic uh, force if that is what they want and for a lot of these groups it is I, I mean my goodness listen to chief clarence louis if you haven't already about the the importance of having a, an economic path to prosperity for all canadians not just for indigenous canadians I mean, again, I'm not going to at all lecture Indigenous people on Indigenous issues. I, I won't. But I'm also at the same time in pursuit of listening, in pursuit of understanding. And yeah, even in pursuit of reconciliation, I'm not going to cede any moral high ground to someone who's camping out on a rail line and causing not just the, the economic issues of those who work for the rail lines, you know, CN had to lay off a bunch of people, but you look at this, $850 million worth of manufactured goods, $850 million sit idle every day because of these rail stoppages. So that, that is coming up on a billion dollars. You've got tankers that are just parked in the Pacific Ocean, which how, how much do the environmentalists love that, by the way? Tankers that are just on idle in the Pacific. And the great irony is if you were to put forward this 
national pipeline network that, that oil and gas sector advocates like myself want. If you were to put together a national pipeline network, they couldn't blockade it. I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think a lot of these people don't like the pipelines, because you can't pop you can't pop your campsite on a pipeline and stop the oil or gas from flowing through it. So uh, the rail system, which has more of an environmental impact than pipelines do, the rail system is the one that they get to use as the linchpin So I would like very much to see a way forward here that doesn't involve skulls being cracked in. I don't want to see violence. I would love to see what the government has said it's committed to, which is de-escalation. But how can you have de-escalation if there are only two outcomes? I mean, one, the protesters decide to leave, or two, the protesters are forcibly removed. So those are your two options. I don't see, and let me know if the comment section uh, warriors want to give me a, a third option here. One, they leave peacefully. Two, they leave forcefully. Forcibly. I don't see any other alternatives. So uh, if you have one, let me know. But but let's say we have those two options. The way they leave peacefully is they just get up and go. They tire themselves out. They lose interest in it or they get what they want and go. Now, what they want is not going to happen. What they want is a complete veto, a complete scrapping of the project, and that's not going to happen. So then you go for the forceful options. And I know that there will be, I mean, like, I can't, I'm trying to think of an example here. If, if you were to forcefully remove a lot of these demonstrators, there's going to be probably half a dozen at each site at least, where if you were to so much as blow in their direction, they would like dramatically fall on the ground and say, oh my goodness, I've broken my back, I can't move. Like, there's no way that this does not get exaggerated to the point where you know people are going to either bait police into a violent interaction or people are going to uh, you know hold up a stubbed toe as being some massive uh, assault by the police state against individual demonstrators but that's what they want that's what the protesters want the protesters want police to engage them and the protesters want there to be a violent or or semi-violent standoff because then they get to say oh because then police cower because of the pr stuff and again you go back to Ipperwash and caledonia and all of those other things and and i get that you know this is not a left-right issue i'm actually sympathetic with the fact that the liberal government right now is in a very bad place because what they do is going to look bad. There's no way to throw someone in handcuffs that when the media snaps a picture of it, it won't look violent. Arrests are not pretty, especially people that are demonstrating and don't want to go along with it. People that want to put up a fight, it does not look pretty. Heads get smashed to the ground, blood happens, people get roughed up a bit. And that's what they want. They want the optics of just these, you know, innocent little naive demonstrators getting thrown to the ground by the big burly police officers in their militarized gear. But, you know, just because they want that, just because they want that doesn't mean that it's the wrong thing to do if there are no other options. And when this has been going on now for what, for two weeks, what are the options? I, look, I, I would love to have this peacefully de-escalated situation. And, you know, in a couple of the cases, the injunctions are, are being enforced or they've packed up and moved away. I mean, like we saw with the uh, border crossings, eventually they just set up and dismantled after a few hours 
But what the demonstrators have done now is proved a concept. They've proved the concept that if they just go along with all of this and just keep protesting and keep demonstrating, the government is not going to intervene. And it's becoming a bigger, bigger issue. And that's why you have the national network. That's why you have this national network of, of these protests, of these blockades. Michael in the chat here says, cut off supplies to the front lines and wait for them to leave. Well, you know, there, there's actually a, an interesting... Uh, aspect of that and I, and I don't think it's lawful or constitutional but but you know they want to put a blockade up they want to put a perimeter up I, I know you've seen those signs now of having like a waiting area where media cannot go past a certain line uh, put a line around that and say and say all right no one in no one in you guys can leave from there but no one can get into there and see how long it takes until, uh, you know, they need the food and water and, and resources and all of that. Although, I mean, in the age of drones, I know that people are going to be airdropping in uh, stuff like that. So, so it might only work in a, in a, limited, in a limited sense. But the, the whole point is, and uh, Doug says in the chat something valuable here, Canada is peaceful and I want to see it stay like that. I, I agree. I would love to see Canada stay peaceful. And, and I'm not a hawkish person, but you cannot claim neutrality in times of war. And, I, and I'm not overemphasizing what's happening here, but I, I'm rather sharing a, a fundamental principle that if someone is attacking you and shooting you and uh, firing at you, you cannot say, oh, but I'm neutral, I like peace. At that point, you're engaged whether you like it or not. So on a smaller scale, they are attacking our infrastructure. They are attacking uh, our economy. They are attacking our rule of law in Canada, which is supposed to be their rule of law as well. So we are engaged whether we like it or not. We are engaged whether we want to be, and we may not have started it, but there's no reason that we can't finish it. And I don't want that. I don't want this to be a violent episode of Canadian history. But right now... They need to know at least that we're serious. And when you have the law being ignored by the protesters, that's one thing. When you have the law being ignored by the law enforcers, and not at their own behest, by the way. I mean, in this case, law enforcement, you know, is taking orders from the government. You know, law enforcement is taking its marching orders from above. Uh, it means that the government is no longer interested in upholding the rule of law. And, and yes, we are as a country between a rock and a hard place. We are as a country in a very difficult situation right now because there is no right answer. There is no easy way out. But at the same time, at the same time, you need a way out. I mean, you look at the fact that we're in the cold right now. Quebec needs to get its natural gas. And whatever issues you may have with Quebec, I don't want them freezing to death. So Quebec needs propane, which is delivered in many cases by rail. Sure, they can do that by truck. Again, environmentally negative response to this. Uh, I know that a few people have shared this story that it was actually a conservative MP that drew attention to where a vote... <laughs> <laughs> might be delayed on whether to change the citizenship oath to include a line about respecting indigenous peoples. That vote may be disrupted because of protests from those claiming they speak for indigenous peoples. Uh, so talk about your unintended consequences there. And, and the list goes on and on and on. So right now you have something that if you don't address it, it will be the go-to response to any 
energy project in Canada's future if they prove it works. And right now, it looks like they're winning. Right now, I think they're on the right side of this in their minds because, well, the government's not stopping them, so clearly it's, it's working. So, I mean, the government had this meeting of the incident response group, which is basically a bunch of people sitting down. I think they met for seven hours and came out and, and said the same things they were saying before, which is, well, we're working and we want to do it de-escalate and, and all of these other things. Well, you're clearly not doing, uh, not doing much of a good job uh, if we're exactly where we were before this all started. We're obviously going to follow this later on this week on The Andrew Lawton Show. I want to pivot for a moment to access to information laws, which are uh, they're boring to a lot of people, and I apologize for that, but they're also important in many respects because they're one of the only tools that a citizen has to shine a light on the government and on the government's conduct. And, and you know, one of the things that happens with access to information is you get death by bureaucracy where uh, you know the government will just spin its wheels and say oh no it's going to take too long it's we can't do this we can't oh, but but they have to comply Un under the law they have to comply well the federal government is right now employing a loophole to avoid having to comply with the law on access to information by making a man have the determination that he is a vexatious a vexatious access to information seeker. So a man has requested government records. A ruling has now determined him, quote, vexatious. Now, this was a ruling made possible because the liberals put a loophole into the access to information laws, letting someone basically be disqualified from filing ATIPs, as they're called, filing access to information requests. And this is a, from a story in the National Post talking about how the government obfuscates on ATIPs. And one example of how they did it was in the Mark Norman case when Vice Admiral or former Vice Admiral Mark Norman uh, was uh, trying to get information that was being discussed about him. And the government specifically avoided using his name in documents so that when he searches for documents referring to Mark Norman, there's nothing there. And there was one witness who testified uh, that his superior told him, quote, don't worry, this isn't our first rodeo. We made sure we never used his name, unquote. So the government conspiring to not have access to information searchability for its documents. So the information commissioner, Carolyn Maynard, ruled that a man's ATIP was vexatious because in 17 years he had filed 893 requests. Now, access to information requests have gotten a bit easier in the last few years because you can file them for many departments online now. But 893 uh, divided by 17. I could have done this math before, but I wanted you to really get the whole experience of the show here. That's 52 a year. So that's one a week for 17 years. Now, presumably when he was filing them by mail, he was filing them less frequently. It's possible that in recent years he's been filing several a week. But even so... They are the public's documents. Documents obtained from the government under ATIPS are public documents. They belong to the people, not proprietarily speaking to the government. And the fact that this guy was nullified from having them is, I think, a, a massively uh, problematic development because it means that if government doesn't like someone that is onto their trail, basically, they can put this 
title on him and no longer have to go along with any requests he's submitting. Now, it may be this guy is a nuisance. I don't know who it is. It may be that he is genuinely a problem, that he's genuinely someone that's causing grief to the government. But as uh, Duff uh, Conacher said, who is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, any loophole put in there is there for the government to hide something that people have a right to know. When government has a loophole to use, they use it. And that's the big problem here is that, you know, even if there is in the spirit of the law uh, some wiggle room, government is always going to push itself to the outer boundaries of that wiggle room and most likely beyond unless someone is going to constrain them, which in this case it doesn't sound like the information commissioner is doing because the information commissioner is going along with what the government has wanted in this particular case. And, you know, I've, I've, I haven't filed 893 requests, but I do have some experience with these requests. I have some experience with ATIPS and FOIs and, and all of these other things. And, and there are some departments that are dismally bad. For example, the RCMP, which doesn't just ignore its own legal obligations under access to information laws, but even ignores directives from the information commissioner, especially on deadlines. And they say, oh, well, we're overworked. We've got too much going on. So they use that to, I mean, I had one ATIP with RCMP that ended up giving me, I think it was like 30 pages of documents. I mean, a tiny, tiny release. And it took a year, a year to get those documents. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, I filed an, AT or an FOI at the end of December with the Hamilton, Ontario Police Department. And what I wanted from Hamilton was the record of a roadside detention that I was uh, subject to in September. I was late September of 2019. And if you followed uh, me for a while, you know this, that during the federal election campaign, I was following the liberal campaign from stop to stop. And at one point, the RCMP motorcade pulled me over, or a, a, someone in the motorcade pulled me over and detained me illegally. It was an Ill illegal detention. Uh, and by his own admission, which I got on video, I was doing nothing illegal. And it ended up being where that uh, police officer was a Hamilton police sergeant who was traveling with the RCMP that day while Justin Trudeau was in Hamilton. And I, I wanted to get the record of this. And, and I got a response from the Hamilton Police Service that says, okay, we've got your uh, records. You have to come pick them up. And I say, well, I'm not in Hamilton. Can you mail them to me or email? They say, oh, no, 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 we, we can't send them. You have to pick them up in person. So I put up a bit of a fight about this. And eventually she said, all right, well, you're in London. So what I'll do is I'll send them to the London Police Service and then you can pick them up from the London Police Service. And I said, yes, but, but it occurred to me, well, wait, why can you send them to them, but you can't send them to me? I, at this point, they're just making a process that's deliberately opaque. And I've also got another one here. Uh, so I was, you know, I was getting arrested a lot during the, the federal campaign, it felt like. Uh, I was never actually arrested, arrested. And I, one of them was in Thunder Bay, where I was at a, a public event that the liberals were holding at Lakehead University, a public event. And while I was there, I had my wristband and had my ticket and all of that. And uh, two police officers pulled me out of the line that I had been in for over an hour, I think, and said, Andrew, right? And I said, yeah, they're like, can you come with us for a second? And I mean, at this point, I have no idea what's happening. And they said, uh, you know, we've been told uh, you're not welcome here. Uh, we're going to have to ask you to leave. Uh, being a law-abiding citizen, I, I didn't, uh, you know, put up my fists or anything like that. I, I went willingly. 
And I filed a, a freedom of information request and got from that, please be advised that an exhaustive search has been conducted of the records of the Thunder Bay Police Service regarding yourself with the personal information as provided, and there are no records on file pertaining to you. So miraculously, Thunder Bay Police knew that I was banned, banned me, and there is no written record of it. And a lot of this makes me wonder if the stuff that was happening in the Mark Norman case is happening, where people are specifically uh, putting records in such a way that they can't be subject to FOI. I mean, I saw a couple of years ago an ATIP where there was a, an email thread about something or other in, in government. I can't even remember what it is. And the email said, well, call me so that no one can read this. It was like the email had said, like, call me so no one can search the email or something like that, which is great because you'd think if you know enough to know that you should talk on the phone so it's not atypical, you wouldn't put in an atypical email that that's the reason you are wanting a phone call. That's, uh, well, you know, bureaucrats, you never know. But but this is exactly what's happening here. Uh, and, you know, speaking of atips, I will say there was this uh, great document uh, release that Blacklock's reporter had uh, gotten just uh, this week, as a matter of fact, about an issue that I covered when it came up back in October, which was the Laurier University Muslim Voting Guide, a, a guide that was produced by the Islamophobia Industry Research Project at Laurier, which was led by a, a professor named Jasmine Zine. And this... Uh, voting guide was basically telling Canadian Muslims who they should vote for, or specifically who they should vote against, and it was saying don't vote for Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives, don't vote for Maxime Bernier and the uh, People's Party of Canada. They were giving them failing grades because they don't support BDS, and they, they don't support free speech, and all of the, or they do support free speech. That was how they got the failing grade, because they did support free speech and didn't support the uh, Islamophobia motion, M103. But this research initiative that led to the voting guide was given a $25,000 grant by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. The council had given this Islamophobia Industry Research Project $25,000, and one time that uh, the media started to do the right thing on this, the National Post, the Toronto Sun wrote about it. The council was in a bit of a tailspin, these documents show. They were going back and forth the day this was really revealed. And, and at one point were asking, and you can see this in the emails, uh, you know, is this allowed? And, and they didn't know. One of the women said, and I love this, uh, she said, yikes. <laughs> um, because uh, she was like not sure if, if the politically charged uh, motivation, motivations of this were permissible under government grants. And at another point, a, a representative of the department said the PMO is worked up about it. That would be the prime minister's office. And uh, there was an interesting exchange where they were trying to basically, one person in the department, the government department, was trying to justify this. And they're saying, well, you know, we give researchers a lot of latitude and, and trying to come up with all of these other examples when government has uh, funded a group that's done something similar to a voting guide. And they came up with a bunch of environmental stuff and LGBT stuff, nothing that was explicit as we are guiding you on how to vote. So that was the issue. And then 
The Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council eventually said, uh, listen, this we had nothing to do with this. We didn't fund the specific project. Eventually, a re-uploaded version didn't have the SSHRC logo. So at Laurier University, the guide is still online, but it's been re-uploaded without that with thanks to the government of Canada. Although we know from these emails that the government was bankrolling this woman's research and, and this woman's apartment. And if you look at her grant application, she didn't disclose the specific voting guide, but she was very candid that she wanted to uh, start profiling politicians, what she calls alt-right or Islamophobic media outlets. And their definition of Islamophobia was so broad that you couldn't have any... You, you basically you couldn't have anyone not fall under that definition. It was so broad, unless you were you know one of the the activists that were behind the guide or, or with the National Council of Canadian Muslims, which had partnered with it. But but ultimately, that this guide, which flew under the radar until after the election, unfortunately, was one that was indirectly bankrolled by the government, and the government was in that immediate aftermath of learning about it, more focused on, well, did we fund? Like, there was one great email where they, they actually weren't sure if they did fund it or not, and people were going back and forth saying, well, don't say anything until we can figure out if we actually were involved in this or not. And I think there's a story to be told there about big government. When government is so big that the people handing out government grants have no idea what's received them and hasn't received them, uh, but also, it, it's important about the problem of a lot of these researchers, because you look at the list, and they're doling out these $25,000 grants to people that are doing any number of absurd things with them. I mean, in this case, the research is about saying every Canadian is an Islamophobe. There are other research uh, projects that I saw getting grants about colonialism, and everyone's a racist, and everyone's a settler, and everyone's this, and, and everyone's that. And it's amazing how much of your tax money is going towards people uh, researching how you are such a terrible person. This is the one thing I've learned from looking through all of these things. In any case, we have to take a quick break here until... Thursday, I guess. So not that quick, a couple of days. But I do want to give a big thank you to all of you who tuned in to this live and also to those of you who commented. Uh, Bob says, this guy isn't live. I just saw the video skip. Well, that might be a problem with the video, but I read your comment, which means either I'm live or this is like the most uh, detailed artificial intelligence initiative in the history of True North. Either way, worth the price of admission, which was exactly $0. So maybe it's not worth it. In any case, my thanks to all of you. We'll talk to you in a couple of days. From True North for The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.